Well, good morning once again. Good to see you all. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 12? I want to review quickly from last week because this is actually part two of a message we began last week, which we've entitled Jesus, Lord of the Sabbath. And if you've been with, with us through our Matthew studies, you remember that the first ten chapters of Matthew's Gospel, Jesus Christ is being presented to the nation as their long-awaited Messiah and King, first through John the Baptist, then through the Lord, Lord Jesus himself. But here in chapter 11, we see the nation now beginning to slowly turn away from Jesus, rejecting him as their Messiah and King. They're looking for a Messiah that's going to bring glory to the nation. It's going to throw off the yoke of Roman oppression. It's going to allow Israel to rise above all the nations of the earth and the Jewish people to be his prime ministers as the Messiah. The king sits on the throne. He's talking about loving your enemies. He's talking about dying to your own desires. That doesn't square with their concept of a Messiah who is going to lead them in a revolt against Rome. So we see they're beginning to reject him as their Messiah and king. And as they begin to reject him as Messiah... He begins to reject the nation as a whole, but not people. He begins to turn to individuals starting in chapter 11. In fact, at the end of chapter 11, we read the words, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Israel, they've rejected me. But any Jews or Gentiles who will individually receive me into their hearts as the king, I will reign over your life. And someday, when I do bring the physical kingdom to the earth, you will be a part of of that kingdom. Now, as we get into chapter 12, we notice that there is a conflict that has been brewing between the uh, religious leadership, and I'm thinking primarily now of the Pharisees, scribes and Pharisees, uh, against Jesus. And at the end of chapter 11, when he talks about giving them rest if they come to him, I'm sure that they were thinking to themselves, because they're dogging him, folks. They're dogging him. Do you understand something? Last week we saw Jesus and his disciples walking through the fields, right? And his disciples were picking grain because they were hungry and they were eating it. Remember that? And the Pharisees said to Jesus, why are they doing what's not lawful? What are they doing in the fields? They're obviously dogging every step, trying to find anything to accuse him with. You're going to see that in a moment. But when he said, come to me, you know, and I'll give you rest, I'm sure they were thinking, we don't need his rest. We have our Sabbath. And yet the Sabbath had become, as we said last time, anything but a day of rest. Scribes and Pharisees had loaded it down with so many rules and regulations, the people dreaded the Sabbath each week. And chapter 12 records the animosity of the Jewish leadership towards Jesus. Now, it's been there for a while. In fact, it's been, it's been kind of simmering for some time. But now in chapter 12, it begins to reach a full boil. And the issue that brings everything to a head was their interpretation of Sabbath law. That's why I really entitled this section, verses 1 to 14, Jesus, Lord of the Sabbath. And we saw the first part, verses 1 through 8 last week, which we entitled, The Sabbath Misunderstood. And now the second part, verses 9 to 14, The Sabbath Misapplied. And in verses 9 and 10, we see a little subset, a subsection I've entitled, The Pharisees Placed Sabbath Law Over Love and Compassion. See, they had misinterpreted the Sabbath law, and now they are misapplying it into the lives of others. And by doing that, they were placing Sabbath law over love and compassion. Verses 9 and 10 say, Now when he had departed from there, he went into their synagogue. And behold, there was a man who had a withered hand. And they asked him, saying, Who asked him? The scribes and Pharisees asked Jesus, right? 
Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath that they might accuse him? Now, as we're going to see in a moment, I believe this was a setup. Why do I say that? Because at this point, the Pharisees are dogging Jesus Christ everywhere he goes. I believe they set this whole scenario up at this synagogue. You see, it was the Sabbath. And it was the custom of Jesus on every Sabbath day to go to the nearest synagogue, wherever he was, to worship his father. So each Sabbath, that's where Jesus could be found all the time, no exceptions, and his enemies knew that. That's how they were able to lay a trap for him. As soon as Jesus came into the synagogue, the first thing he noticed was this man with a withered hand. Luke, who was a doctor, in his gospel tells us that the man was crippled in his left hand. Jerome, who was an early church father, tells us that according to ancient tradition, the man with a withered hand was actually a plasterer, which meant he was a construction worker, a blue-collar guy, all right? Just an average Joe laborer, and his hand was probably injured on the job in some way. Maybe he fell off a scaffolding or off a ladder, and it caused his hand, his left hand, to be paralyzed, which they call withered, which meant his ability to perform his job was over with. I mean, if you ever watch plasterers work, and these guys, it is smooth, man. When you watch a plasterer work, they got the plaster in the one hand, and they're taking the trial, and they're, you need two hands. Because this guy had a crippled hand now, he could no longer ply his trade. So how was he able to provide for himself and his family? Well, he was reduced to odd jobs and maybe begging a little bit. And this was the days before workman's comp and social security. Uh, injury disability, which meant that if the guy had a family, and this is important to the story, if he had a family, it meant they were also suffering as a result of his injury, which no doubt brought further shame upon this man. You can't provide for your family. I mean, that's what a man, a, a decent man, a good man, that's all a good man wants to do is take care of his family. Very important for men who are decent guys, they want to make sure that their families are taken care of. Here was a guy, through no fault of his own, was injured, and now he can't really take care of his family. You imagine the shame that that brought upon this man. Because one area of his life was messed up, his whole family was suffering. And guys, in that regard, he becomes a spiritual illustration of so many in the church today. People who have a one area of their life that is kind of withered. It's kind of crippled. It's not working properly. Something isn't functioning like it's supposed to. Maybe it's their marriage. Maybe it's a relationship with one of their children. Uh, maybe it's their walk with God. Something isn't functioning properly. It's withered. It's paralyzed. And they know it. Now, the Pharisees grabbed this guy, stuck him in the synagogue. You say, well, why would the, this guy go along with the Pharisees? They probably paid him off. Probably paid him off. Knew he was hurting. Capitalized on his need. And the Pharisees stuck him in that synagogue, not because they cared about this guy. They could care less about this guy. All they wanted to do was stick him in the synagogue, hopefully that Jesus would then heal him, violate Sabbath law in their minds. They could accuse him and hopefully bring him up on charges and maybe have him crucified. If that didn't work, at least they could begin to diminish him in the eyes of the Jewish people who revered Moses and the law. And so this was their way of trying to get at Jesus. It's interesting to me. They knew one thing about Jesus Christ that I think a lot of Christians sometimes fail to understand. They knew he was a man of great compassion and kindness. Now, we all know that. It's just that when we're going through a difficult time like this man, sometimes, although we believe it with our heads, we don't really necessarily believe it with our hearts. God loved me so much and was so compassionate and kind to me, he would heal me, is the idea. 
So they knew Jesus Christ was a man of great compassion and kindness. And they also knew he never missed a Sabbath service. They knew that he was totally sold out to God, to his heavenly Father. And knowing these two things, how compassionate Jesus was to any kind of human suffering, and knowing that he never missed a Sabbath a synagogue service, they figured if they could plant this guy into the synagogue, this guy with a withered hand, there was no way that Jesus could walk in there and ignore this guy. No way. They knew the character of Christ even better than a lot of Christians know his character. Why? Because they studied his life. They were following him around. Now, not to learn from his ways, but to find something to, to accuse him with. Now, the scribes, of course, this is where I say they, they, they so elevated the law of Moses and, um, and Sabbath law, to a place of almost worship is what it was. And they had developed, the scribes and Pharisees, all kinds of restrictions of things that constituted work on the Sabbath and therefore were prohibited. We talked about some of these last time. Um, in fact, later on when the Talmud was constructed or put together, the Talmud was just bringing together all of the Jewish oral traditions and so on. In the Talmud, it devoted 24 chapters can you imagine this? 24 chapters containing things you could not do on the Sabbath. Well, we said a few last week. On the Sabbath, they determined. How they did, we don't know. They determined it was only lawful to, to carry a burden that weighed as much as a dried fig. How do you come up with that? All right? So if you wore dentures, you had to take them out on the Sabbath. You had a wooden leg, you had to take it off. You couldn't spit on the ground on the Sabbath. Why? Spittle would mix with the dust or the dirt, create mud. Mud is mortar. You're making mortar on the Sabbath. That's a no-no. We said last week, you couldn't take a bath on the Sabbath. Why? Some of the water might spill uh, out of the bathtub onto the floor, wash the floor. You violated the Sabbath. You couldn't look in a mirror, you ladies, on the Sabbath. You might see a gray hair, be prone to pull it out. That's working on the Sabbath. I mean, folks, those are only a few of literally hundreds if not thousands of rules and regulations that they had come up with. The things you couldn't do on the Sabbath so much so, as I said earlier, that when the Sabbath came, it was no longer the biggest blessing of the week. It became the biggest burden, and they dreaded it. They dreaded it. So in verses 9 and 10, the Pharisees placed Sabbath law over love and compassion. Verses 11 through 13, Jesus turned it around and placed love and compassion over Sabbath law. Verse 11, Then he said to them, What man is there among you who has one sheep, and if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not lay hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value, then, is a man than a sheep? Therefore it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and it was restored as whole as the other. Well, (laughs) sure enough, as soon as Jesus walked into this synagogue, His eyes were directed to this man with the paralyzed hand. In those days, guys, they believed paralysis was a judgment from God. It was a judgment from God. That's what the rabbis taught. And therefore, a person who was handicapped was ostracized because they were being judged by God. Don't get away from me. You know, Uh, they they were regarded as social lepers. Nobody would socialize with them. But, you know, Jesus is not one for those kinds of prejudices. He comes right up to the guy. Jesus Christ is always drawn in any church. And I realize this wasn't a church. It was a synagogue relating it to us today. You think when the Lord Jesus Christ comes to a God-fearing, Bible-teaching church, what do we think? I'll tell you what what a lot of folks think. We're not doing so well. That when I go to church, 
Jesus is drawn to those that really have it together. You know, the model Christians. Yeah, open the dictionary, find the word Christian, and there's their picture. Those are the folks he wants to hang out with. Why would he want to hang out with a loser like me? You know, I come to church, and I'm not doing so well. I know that my life, my Christian life is withered in some area. It's kind of paralyzed. I'm not reading the Word as much as I used to. I'm not, you know, in prayer like I used to. I'm getting back into some of the old habits I used to be free of. And if you do come to church, because the devil's whispering in your ear, what? 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 Don't even bother. You're a lost cause. Stay home. What's the point? The Lord doesn't want to see you anyways. But if you do drag yourself to church, you tend to sit in the back. No, nothing to you folks in the back. (laughs) Just for sake of illustration. I'm not making any kind of judgments. I'm just saying. You tend to sit in the back. Why? Because I just want to hide. I want to be like this guy with the withered arm, right? He went to the back of the synagogue. We're going to see that in a moment. Why? I'm embarrassed. I'm ashamed. I mean, people think I'm being judged by God because I'm handicapped. I mean, I didn't ask for this. You know, it just happened. But now I'm being, you know, made to feel like this was a judgment of God upon my life. I don't want people to see I'm handicapped. I don't want them to see this. I'm embarrassed. He probably went to the back of the synagogue, just like a lot of Christians feel that way, and go to the back of the church. Because Jesus doesn't want to hang around with me anyways. You know? But Jesus Christ, who did he go to? Who is he drawn to? Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is not drawn to those who are doing the best. I mean, he loves those. I mean, don't get me wrong. But he's drawn to those who are hurting, broken, crippled in their walk, you know, paralyzed in their life due to sorrow, sadness, loss. Maybe the old habits, you know, being set free at one point from alcohol or drugs or pornography or something else, but now slowly those things have gained a hold on your life again. And you come to church and you feel embarrassed, you feel worthless, and you sit in the back because, after all, why would the Lord want to deal, hang out with me or so on and so forth? And, and, and you don't realize that you're the very person Jesus wants to reach out to. You have to understand that Jesus' whole ministry was that he was drawn to the broken the disenfranchised, the hurting, the helpless, the hopeless. That's what his ministry was all about. He hung out with the people that society had rejected and written off. I mean, don't you think now that you're his kid, he's going to want to seek you out even more when you have a problem, when you're hurting, when you feel like your walk is paralyzed or crippled in some way? You're feeling like he doesn't want anything to do with me, and you're the first person he wants to approach. I mean, it's the very nature of the Lord Jesus Christ to seek out those who are hurting the most to minister to. Didn't he call himself the great physician? I mean, some of you might be physicians. We do have some in the church, but you understand. If you walk into an emergency room and there's two people waiting to be seen, one's got a headache and the other was just involved in a very serious car accident, who's the doctor going to be drawn to first? The person with the greatest need, right? That's how our great physician, the Lord Jesus Christ, he's always drawn to those who have the greatest need. And that's why it's so important to be in church when you're not doing so well. This is a healing place. It should be. As the saints get to know, hey, you're struggling. We want to rally around you. We want to pray with you. And, of course, the Lord is there among his people to reach out to you and to minister to you. Don't isolate yourself. Understand, this is where you need to be. 
This is where the Lord wants to give a healing touch and to strengthen you in those areas that right now you're feeling very weak in. That's how our Lord operates. And so Jesus Christ was drawn to this man. And in verse 13, he said, stretch out your hand. Now, Mark records in his gospel that Jesus first said to the man, step forward. Why? Because, again, he was sitting in the back of the synagogue. And, again, why was that? Because, no doubt, he was humiliated. And he didn't want everyone to see he was handicapped. I can almost hear the man saying to himself, I'm embarrassed, I'm ashamed, I, I don't want people to see me. I'm just sitting back and just kind of be invisible. I mean, have you ever felt that way? Have you ever been in church surrounded by people and felt so alone because you thought what you were going through nobody else was going through? You're the only one. How could I even be a Christian? Real Christians don't feel this way. Oh, really? So Jesus tells him, step forward. Now, if you were this guy, you were trying to hide out in the back of the church, what would enter your mind if Jesus looked at you and said, you come up here? Oh, man, I don't want to go up there. I don't want people to see me. What does the Bible say? Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he'll do what? He'll lift you up. You know, when you're not doing so well, you want to isolate yourself, right? And if you do come to church, you want to hide out in the back. But you know what you need to do? You need to step forward. You need to let people you can trust know what's going on so they can pray for you. That's how Jesus is saying to you, come, step forward. He wants to minister to you, and he's going to do it through his people. That's why you need to be in church when you're not doing well. Don't let the devil tell you, God doesn't want anything to do with you. Stay home. What's the point? You need to be in church, and you need to step forward, and you need to, to go to people you respect who are mature, spirit-filled believers and share with them what you're going through so that they can begin to pray for you. And through them, the Lord's healing touch through prayer will be upon your life. So Jesus said, come on up here. And then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And once again, what do you think was going through this guy's mind? I can almost hear him say, are you kidding me? Stretch out my hand. Are you mocking me? Do you know how many times I've tried to move this hand since that accident? And I haven't been. I've tried. I can't move my hand. He could have, he could have just been disgusted and walked away and walked out of that synagogue. But there was something about Jesus' command. He found some kind of a supernatural confidence in the command of Jesus that gave him confidence to try. And as he willed to do the Lord's will and made an effort to move the hand, suddenly God gave him the power to move the hand and healed him on the spot. You know, there's an old saying that goes, God's commandments are God's enablements, right? So often, though, we try a little bit here and there to do something. doesn't work out, and then we give up. And then when God begins to encourage us to another believer to try again. We want to give excuses. Oh, been there, done that, you know. I tried to do this. I tried to be free of the alcohol or the cigarettes or the drugs or the pornography. I've tried and it just I just can't. I just there's no way. Well, maybe you've tried in the past, that's true, but maybe you've tried in the energy of your own strength and not in the power of God. We've all been there too. I mean, there is trying and then there's trusting. This man was not trying in his own strength. That was gone. 
His trying was a trying of trust in what Jesus had said. Stretch out your hand. Again, God's commandments are God's enablements. You know, God has said to us many things in his word, many commands he has given to us. Here's one. Rejoice always. In everything, give thanks. How can I give thanks for everything, Lord? Rejoice always. In everything, give thanks. Are you kidding me? I can't do that. All right. If you want me to do it, then give me the feelings. Give me the feelings and I'll rejoice. God says, you rejoice for what you can't see. And you thank me for what I'm doing, even though you don't understand. And I'll give you victory. I will give you blessing. And you'll be able to feel as you rejoice and thank me with all confidence. God says, love your enemies. Love my enemies. Lord, are you kidding me? I can't do that. I don't even like my enemies. So, well, Lord, if you give me feelings, I'll, I'll love them. No, no. You love them by serving and helping them, and I'll give you feelings for them. How about this, guys? I can't love my wife. Man, I've tried to love that woman. No way. I can't do it, you know. What does God say in Ephesians 5? Husbands, love your wives. He doesn't say love them if you feel like it. Love them if they're worthy. He says, love your wives. He doesn't say, but first take my 15-week seminar with 32 CDs, 22 videos. It's only $8.95 in the church gift shop. I mean, you know, that's how you're going to... We make everything so complicated, don't we? God says, you love those girls. You love them with my love. You serve them. And all the feelings that used to be there that have gone will come back. And same thing with you gals. Probably many of you are battling various habits. We all do, right? Bad habits that we have battled for years maybe. You talk to people, I just can't get victory. I I just can't get, that's the problem. I can't get victory. The Bible says in Christ, we already have the victory. In fact, we are more than conquerors through him. Not through, I can't get it, through him. He got it. He got the victory on Calvary's cross. We are in him. Therefore, victory isn't something we're pursuing. It's something we have. We just need to appropriate and walk in by faith. That's what Paul said in Romans 6, verse 6. He said, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. The word done away with there is a word in the Greek that means rendered inoperative. When Jesus died on the cross and we gave our hearts to him, his victory became our victory. Sin no longer has dominion. The sin nature is what he's talking about. No longer has dominion or control over us. We are no longer in bondage to it. It's been rendered inoperative. Can I jumpstart it again? Of course you can. Just go out and start sinning some more. What God rendered inoperative, you'll fire that baby right up again. But you know what? If you walk in the Spirit and you walk by faith and appropriate the victory of God by faith, that it's already yours through what Christ did, guess what? You'll walk in that victory. God doesn't want to hear excuses. He wants to hear, yes, Lord, your servant obeys based on what you have said. And of course, you can read Romans 6, verses 11 to 14, where Paul talked about, likewise, 
You also reckon yourself dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Jesus Christ. The word reckon there was an accounting term it meant to put to your account. Hey, this is a truth. It's a truth that is valid for all of God's children. The problem is, just because it's a truth that victory is yours, sin will no longer have dominion over you, doesn't mean you have to walk in that victory. You've got to reckon it to your account. What is that? It's a, it's a faith word. You've got to believe what God has said, and you've got to act on it by faith. That's how you begin to walk in victory. It's not a question of getting it. You've got it. It's a question of just walking in it, living it. You know, I, I asked Cindy if I could share this story, and she said I could. It was no secret, but my wife, for years after she got saved, continued to smoke cigarettes. Now, she never tried to deny it. If somebody asked her, she would tell them the truth, but she never flaunted it, never did it in public. It's always in our home and so on. And a few of us who knew about it would pray for her and all. And uh, this went on for about 10 years. And one day the Lord spoke to her because she was praying over those years, Lord, just take the desire away and I'll quit. One day the Lord spoke to her pretty clearly and said, Cindy, you're never going to feel like quitting. You enjoy it too much. Therefore, you're never going to have victory unless you of your own free will decide I am no longer going to smoke because it dishonors my God and God has given me victory over anything the devil would use to keep me in bondage. So she made a conscious decision that day that by God's grace she was no longer going to smoke, crunched them, threw them in the garbage, and when she did that, God broke the bonds and she has been smoke-free since that day. You know, Yesterday was the one-year anniversary of my Uncle Art's passing. Many of you knew Uncle Art. He's a great guy, wasn't he? A soul winner. Everybody he talked we wanted to share the gospel with. Sunday school teacher. Kids know him, love him. And many of you know Art's story that before he got saved for many years, he was a, an alcoholic, very severe alcoholic, who had tried to be free, gone to AA meetings, and could never get victory. And now we get saved, and he's still battling with the alcohol. And now he's trying to get victory to honor God. He's trying. And yet he kept failing. And he told me the story of how one day he got knelt by his bed and said, Lord, I can't do it. I don't have the strength to be free of this. Lord, I need your strength. I mean, you promised me victory. Lord, I I receive it. And he said, the Lord touched him right there. He stood from that kneeling position and he was alcohol free. He never even had a DT. He just was free. Look, if you're here this morning and you are battling with anything that has made you feel not whole as a Christian, again, maybe withered in some area, crippled, your walk is frozen, things aren't happening, you're getting back into some of the old habits, and you drag yourself to church feeling very condemned and thinking, why would God... He is so disgusted with me. You know, I was walking with him. I had victory. I was in church. I was reading the word. Now look at me. He must really be disgusted with me. And if that's how you're feeling, understand this. You're the first person Jesus is drawn to. He loves you so much. He died to set you free. He doesn't want any handicap spiritually in your life. And he will be drawn to you. And he will be drawn to you and will use his people. If you will humble yourselves and make them understand what you're going through, that we can rally around you and begin to pray for you, I believe the Lord will touch your life and make it whole. Now, 
that's a practical look at this passage. Let's spend a few moments on the doctrinal implications. As we said to start this study, uh, in verses 1 through 8, we saw the Pharisees' doctrinal misunderstanding of the Sabbath law, which then led in verses 9 to 13 to a doctrinal misapplication of Sabbath law. Doctrinally, the uh, leadership, scribes and Pharisees, I'm thinking primarily, had come to the conclusion that man was made for the Sabbath. They elevated the Sabbath to a place of worship in their minds. Uh, You know, the Sabbath was everything. Uh, The Jews were created to live, to honor the Sabbath day. That was how they thought. So men were made for the Sabbath. That was their interpretation of Sabbath law. Jesus, though, corrected them in Mark 2.27 by saying to them just the opposite. He said, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. It was supposed to be a blessing. Give your body some time to rest. Give you time to spend time with God. You're out in the fields all week. You're farming. It's hard work. You need to rest a little bit. And you need to spend that time just worshiping me. But the Pharisees turned it around and made the Sabbath an object of worship. They elevated it above, above human need and suffering. And it led them to a very cold and uncompassionate application of Sabbath law. Turn to Luke 13. Give you an example. We're seeing one example here. Matthew 12. Turn to Luke 13 once. It's another incident that happened on the Sabbath. Verse 10, Luke 13. Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And behold, there was a woman who had a spirit of infirmity 18 years and was bent over and could in no way raise herself up. Now I've seen pictures of people afflicted with this. They are bent over at the waist where their heads are hanging down, their feet, hands can touch their feet, but they're bent over. They can't straighten up. This was a demonic thing. But when Jesus saw her there in the synagogue on the Sabbath, he called her to him. Again, he's calling people to him. He wants to touch. And said to her, woman, you are loose from your infirmity. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight and glorified God. But the ruler, get this, the ruler of the synagogue answered with indignation, because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath and said to the crowd, There are six days on which men ought to work. Therefore, come and be healed on them, and not on the Sabbath day. Oh, how pious. Standing for truth, so he thought. The Lord Jesus answered and said to him, Hypocrite! Well, that's not good. That's never good when the Lord says that to you. All right? Here you're thinking you're standing up for righteousness sake. You're being a real, you know, person of conviction. And here the Lord says, you hypocrite. Does not each one of you on the Sabbath loose his ox or donkey from the stall and lead it away to water it? So ought not this woman, being a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan is bound, think of it. For 18 years be loose from this bond on the Sabbath? And when he had said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame. And all the multitude rejoiced for all the glorious things that were done by him. Well, Jesus uses the same logic in our passage this morning. He said in verse 11, And he said to them, What man is there among you who has one sheep, and if it falls into the pit on the Sabbath, will not lay hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value then is a man than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful. It's always lawful to do good on the Sabbath, is what he's saying. The Pharisees, like a lot of people today in our culture, listen, 
The Pharisees treated animals back then with more kindness and compassion than they did people made in the image of God. It's no different today. That indicates a warped society. That's a sick society. When society begins to look at animals as more important than people, you got problems, just like our society today. I told you this story years ago. I was out driving around somewhere doing something, you know, and uh, I pulled up behind a car. And I like to look at, if there's a bumper sticker or two on the car, I like to read them because you can learn a lot about people from their bumper stickers. So this gal had two bumper stickers on her bumper. The one read, save the whales. The other one read, keep abortion legal. And I thought, man, that sums it up right there. That That is the mindset today. Save the whales, but kill the kids. How twisted and sick is that? Where have we gone as a society? There are certain insects in certain places in this country where if you stepped on them and somebody saw you, they could report you and you'd receive a $2,500 fine for stepping on an insect. You want to kill a child in its mother's womb? The state will pay you to do that. That's sick. Animals have become more important than people. Well... I think this is one of the tragic outworkings of the Hindu theology, which leads to a disregard for human need, even elevating animals and even insects above humans. In Hinduism, as we've already talked about in prior studies, um, a beggar is not given food. Why? Well, that's going to interfere with him working off that karma. You see, in a prior life, he must have been selfish and stingy, and he wouldn't help the poor. And now he's come back as a beggar. And if you give him food, you're only messing up his karma. He's got to work all that off. Because if he doesn't work it off, he won't come back into a higher, more elevated position next time around through reincarnation. He don't want to help the guy. What a joke, right? What a, what a master stroke of the devil. To think that by being unmerciful and uncompassionate, you're really doing the greater good by not helping somebody. But that's Hinduism. In Hinduism, a fly is not killed. I don't kill flies because it might be the reincarnation of some unfortunate person in a prior life who I guess was very, very base, didn't even deserve human form, so in this life he's a fly. And you don't want to swat him, you might be one of your relatives. You know? You don't kill the flies in Hinduism. Rats are also not killed for the same reason and are allowed to eat and contaminate food supplies without any interference. Cows in Hinduism are sacred and are given whatever food is available. Kids are starving. Cows are well-fed in Hinduism because they're sacred. And um, we can see that false doctrine, and I'm obviously not Christian doctrine, but false doctrine leads to a lot of horrible deeds, all done in the name of doing what's right. Turn to Mark 3 as we wrap this up. I want to read you the parallel passage, the one we've been studying in Matthew 12. Well, Mark 3 is the parallel passage. Let's just read verses 4 and 5. Jesus said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they kept silent, his critics. And when he looked around at them with anger, being grieved by the hardness of their hearts. So sad when people who claim to represent God become so callous to human suffering and elevate their rules and rituals 
and traditions above everything else. How sad is that? So Jesus was grieved by the hardness of their hearts and said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and his hand was restored as whole as the others. Hey, look, nobody can fault these guys for their zeal for the word of God. They were standing on their convictions, and that's noble, but only if your convictions are right. You can be zealous for the word of God and be a person of deep conviction, but just make sure your convictions, guys, are based in a proper understanding of what God is actually saying in his word. Don't just yank things out of context and go, okay, well, this is what God says, and I'm going to stand on it. I'm going to be a person of conviction. Well, make sure that your convictions are based on a proper interpretation of what God has actually said in his word. You know, I once saw an interview years ago with a man who was a Jehovah's Witness whose wife had just died because she refused to receive a blood transfusion that would have saved her life. See, the JWs have misinterpreted something God said in the Old Testament. God said to the Jewish people in the Old Testament, you are not to eat the blood. That's what kosher is all about, guys. You kill the animal... You hang it upside down, slit its throat, and drain the blood out, and then the rabbi blesses it. That's what kosher means. The animal has been properly bled and then blessed. And because God said to the Jewish people in the Old Testament, you shall not eat the blood, they interpret that today as you can't have a blood transfusion. So this woman could have been saved. She was a mother of several children. But because she was standing on her convictions, she refused to take the blood transfusion, and she died. And as the husband is being interviewed, he's being interviewed with pride because his wife stood for what she believed. Well, great. I mean, you know, I mean, people of conviction, I I respect. Don't misunderstand what I'm about to say. I can respect the convictions of a Muslim who straps a bomb belt onto themselves and then detonates it in a public market. I, I, I don't agree with that. I'm not praising the action. You can't deny the conviction, though, can you? Nobody can say that they don't really believe what they say they believe. But again, convictions can be misguided if they're not based on truth. Of course, Islam is a lie that the devil has foisted on so many human beings. Years ago, I remember watching the movie Chariots of Fire. Many of you watched that movie, which was about a young Olympian named Eric Little. Now, there was another main character in the story, but uh, Eric Little was one of the main guys. Eric Little was uh, born in China, by the way, to missionary parents. So his parents, uh, family was very devout Christians, all right? And in the race, you see how Eric was a very gifted runner. In fact, he eventually made the Olympic team, and his event was the 100-meter dash. And when he got to the Olympics, when he found out that they had scheduled the race for on Sunday, which in his mind was the Sabbath, he refused to run in that race. Now, you can rent the movie and find out what happened. But here's the thing. As we said last week, the Sabbath was given to the Jewish people as a sign of the Mosaic Covenant. We are not under the law. There's a lot of godly Christians who think that the church has replaced Israel. Therefore, Israel's Sabbath on Saturday has been replaced with the Christian Sabbath on Sunday. I don't agree with that. We are not under the law. For us, every day is a day of rest. We rest every day in the finished work of Christ. Every day is a day of worship, right, as Christians. But Eric was a man of conviction. And I know that God will honor those who want to honor him and obey him and are, con- are people of conviction and who will stand on principle, even if their theology is not completely accurate in that area. Eric's, I don't believe, was, but he was a man of conviction. I respect that. 
And God does honor that. But look, I always feel that it's always better to make sure your convictions are based on a proper understanding of what God has actually said, right? And we're talking about the noble. Let's talk about those who interpret God's word for less than noble reasons. I mean, this would include especially the foolish interpretations like those who say, well, I'm saved by grace. It doesn't matter how I live. In fact, Paul said that by my sin, God's grace is manifested and he is glorified. Therefore, why don't we sin all the more that grace may abound? Now, Paul dealt with that lunacy, didn't he? In his epistles, Romans and others, right? What kind of lunacy says, well, if by my sin God was able to, to show me grace and that glorified his name, the more I sin, the more grace God, the more grace God displays, the more glory he gets. I think Jesus would say around that point, get thee behind me, Satan. So that's ridiculous. Or how about this one today? Or are we hearing a lot of today? God is love. Would anyone deny in this room that God is love? God is love, right? That's truth. But then they interpret it or they work it out in their lives by saying, and since God is love, he would never send anyone to hell. See, before I came here this morning, I always check the news real quick, seeing if I don't get an illustration or a little story I can use. I did today. Because there is a movie coming out soon by an author, by a guy who wrote the story, claiming that since God is love, he would never send anyone to a place of eternal torment like hell. So he proposed that it's, he was an annihilationist. In other words, unbelievers get cast in the lake of fire, they hit the lake of fire, poof, they go out of existence. Okay? Or author Rob Bell in his book several years ago, Love Wins, uh, he was basically a universalist who said, well, in the end, we all get saved. God's a softy. He's a loving God. He won't send anyone to hell. He, he likes to threaten us, scare us a little bit. But in the end, he's gonna, everyone's going to make it. You know, folks, that's wishful thinking. That's not rooted in truth. If you remove the reality of hell from the gospel message, you, re, you remove the teeth of the gospel message. Because the Bible says Jesus came to seek and to save those who are lost. Save them from what? There's no hell. What's he saving them from? He, is, he has come to seeking to save us from eternal torment, from his wrath, from his judgment, if we receive Christ. People have all these kind of misinterpretations that they then built their convictions on. I'll give you one more that you might find uh, amusing. I had a friend years ago, an unsafe friend, who tried to tell me that adultery was actually, you know, adultery with the woman next door was actually okay because he said it was simply loving your neighbor. As God has commanded. Wow. I think I did say to him, get thee behind me, Satan. What did Paul say to a young uh, pastor in 2 Timothy 2, verse 15? He said, be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed on the day when you stand before Jesus. Rightly dividing the word of truth. That's why you guys are here today. Because you want to study God's word that you can rightly divide it and make sure that your convictions are based on a proper interpretation of what God has said. Well, how do the Pharisees react to Jesus working this miracle and healing this poor guy's hand? I mean, here's a guy who had been out of work for years, all right? 
And suddenly now he's healed. How did the Pharisees handle this? You think they were all excited? Well, praise God. Poor guy is now restored. I mean, look, he's go back to his family. He can, he can work and provide for his, his, his kids and so on. No, it says in verse 14, the Pharisees went out and plotted against him how they might destroy him. Look it. The Pharisees had misapplied not just Sabbath law, guys, but they had misapplied the whole law. And in their minds, they believed that by keeping the Mosaic law, they could earn righteousness and earn salvation. How many people today are misapplying things uh, that their church is telling them probably, saying, look, if you keep the traditions, if you do the good works, as a Catholic, I was told, you know, light the candles, pray the rosary, do the stations of the cross. If you are faithful in doing these little works, you earn installments of grace. Guys, grace is a gift. You can't earn a gift. You don't earn grace. You receive grace. And God says, if you try to earn what I'm giving freely, salvation, you're not going to get it. The law was designed by God to be our schoolmaster, our tutor, to bring us to Christ. How? By showing us there was no way we could ever keep all those laws perfectly to earn salvation. We were hopeless sinners. We were done before we began. And the purpose of the law was not to save us. It was to show us we're sinners, right? Romans 3. In the hopes that we would abandon all self-effort to get us to heaven, fall to our knees, and receive the gift of eternal life by faith. That honors God, doesn't it? So be very careful because today a lot of people are trying to tell you a lot of things that seem to make sense to the natural mind about how you approach God, about the things that you need to do to earn his favor and so on. You need to read your your Bible. If you read God's word, you'll never go astray. You'll, You'll walk in light. You'll never stumble in darkness. Father, we thank you so much for your word. It is truth. It brings light. We shall never walk in darkness if we walk in your truth. It's a light to our feet, a a lamp to our feet, and a light to our paths. But, Father, even as your people, we can get caught up in our own little pet traditions and doctrines. I mean, there are churches who won't help a single pregnant mother because she has sinned. She needs to be taught a lesson, ostracized. Well, Lord, yes, she sinned, but who hasn't sinned? I just love it when God's people surround that little gal, tell her how much they love her, go ahead and help her get on her feet, maybe buy a crib, throw her a shower. There are churches that are absolutely appalled by that. Lord, help us. We are all sinners saved by grace. We just pray, Lord, that you would give us tenderness of heart. I mean, we're not condoning sin when people do it but we don't want to condemn them either we want to reach out in love as you did Lord to those that were condemned in in their cities and towns we just thank you Lord Father give us grace to be true representatives of you to this world Father we ask all this now in Jesus name Amen